Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. Hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Quick update on the paper short Tesla trade. That was a false breakdown. My apologies. That breakdown <laughs> was of the false variety. And it's now up 23% off the lows. And as my friend JC Peretz likes to say, from false moves come fast moves. Hey, explain this to me. Explain technical analysis to me. What do the candlesticks look like today? Let's not get into that right now. But I will be speaking at the CMT annual conference this week, which sounds like a joke <laughs> in light of this. But I am actually going to be there with Josh on Friday. Look forward to seeing all the... Uh, Market technicians that could they'll be waiting. Make fun of me they'll for be waiting one. for you with pitchforks. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, so let's move on to some personal finance stuff. April is the National Literacy Finance Month. That doesn't make sense, but it's something like that. National Financial Literacy Month. Okay, there it is. That so was what a, do we that got? was a false breakdown on your on your. Part. <laughs> there, there was actually a story this week in TIA Cref does a survey every every year, and I know that this is an anti-survey podcast. But we're going to use it anyway because I, I see these all the time. We're going to walk that one back just for this one. Oh, yes, exactly. And then and the next survey that we cover. So there's always these financial literacy surveys given, and they're very simple questions about compound interest and debt repayment. And the numbers are never good. And so there was one from TIA Cref and the Global Financial Literacy Excellence Center, which sounds like another Zoolander school or something for <laughs> kids who can read really, really good. And they found that in the survey, adults could only answer about half of the 28 questions on personal finance. And it's simple questions like, if you had a dollar and gained 5%, how much do you have the next year? And then how much do you have the year after that? Most people don't even know what a collateralized debt obligation is. Can you believe that? Unbelievable. And and so the stuff that comes out from this stuff is usually the fact that we need to teach financial literacy in, in all high school or college. And in some ways, I think that's true. But in some ways, I think that that probably doesn't solve the problem at all. Because a lot of the studies show that simply teaching people financial literacy doesn't improve their financial lives at all. So what do you think the solution is here? It's tough. I don't really know what the solution is, but I, I think about the fact that, and I'm making this up, but like a third of people in this country think that the world is f- flat. Like there's just a lot of dumb people out there. And I'm reminded of the George Carlin quote, think about how stupid the average person is and realize half of them are stupider than that. A classic. So, so my, my, thought, my line of thinking in this has changed. I thought for sure a few years ago that we need to just teach financial literacy to people. But you know, how much of that stuff you learn in school do you actually apply to real life? Probably not a lot. So there was a study in Yale in the 1960s that, that I thought was a good precursor to this. And they, they wanted to figure out a way to influence students to get more tetanus shots because people were not doing it at the time. And they, get, they split it up into two groups. And one group was given all the knowledge about getting their shot. And then they asked them afterwards, you know, are you going to get your shot? And of course, everyone said yes. And in the end, only like 3% of them got the shot. And then the next group, they, they did the same exact lecture. But instead of asking them, are you going to get your shot? They gave them a map to show where to go get it. And at that time, it went up by like tenfold the number of people who did it. So simply like telling people what to do, knowledge alone is never enough to, you know, get the desired behavior. You have to actually give people a map. So I think that's that's part of it. People just need a simple system to follow 
And they, they almost need a coach or someone to hold their hand to do it in a lot of ways. Thaler wrote all about this idea in his classic book, Nudge. Yes, which is which I think is a good model that people need that sort of system in place to help them make good decisions and, and make it easier for them and not just, you know, here, here's a book and go at it. They need systems and, and yeah, they need to push in the right direction. There was a, another survey that we <laughs> came across. And I don't really know. It doesn't say the um, the source of like who answered these questions. But anyway, I think the idea is still valid. So people were asked how much money they think they will need to accumulate to live comfortably in retirement. And the answers are pretty startling. 36% of people think they can retire on less than $500,000. And for people that don't have a lot of money, $500,000 sounds like all the money in the world. And unfortunately, that's probably a goal that's too stretched for them to ever accomplish. But even if you were able to save $500,000 upon retirement, using the simple 4% rule, that's $20,000 a year, which is you know, not a ton of money to live on. I'm ballparking. I'm, I'm, a, I'm assuming, I don't know, 60% of people are going to have to live on less than that. And the other interesting one was, so what was it? 37% said they need more than a million. And the stat that we found is that there's only one out of every 20 people in America is a millionaire. So 5% of the population. So you know, almost 40% of people think they're going to need more than a million, but currently only 5% of the population in the US is a millionaire. So that's just sort of a pipe dream line of thinking as well. Yeah. So moving from the layman to the masters of the universe, there's been a lot of news in the hedge fund world this last week. There was an article in the journal, Bill Ackman's Pershing Square faces waves of investor redemptions. Which which is not surprising when you look at, at his numbers, which they had these on CNBC and I was kind of shocked. So in 2015, he lost over 20%. 2016, he lost almost 14%. And then he's down again, almost 9% in 2018 after losing 4% last year. So, I mean, it's mostly, I'm assuming, big institutional capital with him and family office money. But after three and a half, four years of of not only losing on an absolute level, but on a relative level too, you can't be surprised by this idea that people are fleeing. So even after this really poor period of performance, since 2004 through 2017, Persian returned 494% after fees more than double the S&P 500 returns over the same period. So if you've been with him since day one, you have done extraordinarily well. If you've been with him over the last three years, you've done really poor. Which is one of the reasons it's so hard to perform a manager of managers approach, which is what I used to do in the endowment world. Because you see this glorious track record and you think it's just it sort of messes with your mind because you're waiting for that mean reversion to kick in, which doesn't really have to happen Be based on these masters of the universe. It, it could be that he never returns to those glory days, or this is just a bump in the road, and 10 years from now we say, oh my gosh, you should have been buying Ackman hand over fist. You just don't know. Yeah, I'm very excited to see where this goes, because you're right. Like, There's no reason to think that individual performance should mean revert, but this could be an extraordinary time to invest with him. I guess we'll find out. This reminds me of a study that either Morningstar or Vanguard did that I referenced periodically, over the last 15 years, call it 15% of, of mutual funds have outperformed their benchmark, but 75% of them have underperformed for three straight years. And then, of course, at the time, you have no idea which of those are going to come back. But the point is, if you want outsized returns like investors have gotten with Ackman, you're going to have to expect this. Now, the problem is in real time, it's impossible to know whether this is a bump in the road and he recovers or if this is sort of the beginning of the end. And so the other one with Ackman, his his kind of peer 
in terms of his age group that has, has done really well too is David Einhorn has also run into problems. So he was down 14% in the first quarter after having a few years of, of poor returns on his own. And basically anything he's invested in hasn't worked. His shorts are up bigger than his longs. And so he's just gotten demolished. And so they actually had a story about him in the Financial Times kind of going over some of his struggles. But what's inter- interesting to me about this one is the fact that Einhorn has been labeled a genius. And I think him and Ackman both have had magazine covers where they're called the next Buffett, which which doesn't look so great now. But the funny thing to me is that now that Einhorn is having such a hard time, his big performance came, and a lot of these hedge fund guys' big performance came in the early 2000s. They really did well at the tech bubble and then sort of riding that wave from the 2000 to 2002 bear market. But, but this article tries to sort of backtrack that out and say he, maybe he wasn't a genius because the majority of his gain in 1999 when he kept up with the market was from one spinoff stock. So it's kind of funny how the narrative shifts from, oh, this guy is a genius. He he did the tech bubble fine and did well in the late 90s. And then he turned around and invested in value stocks in the early 2000s. And now it's the the narrative is, oh, he was just lucky. So it's it's always somewhere in the middle probably, but it's crazy how some poor performance can change that narrative from the past even. Yeah. So this is from the FT. Two of the things that they pointed out that were pretty stunning to me anyway. He has 19% of the fund's capital in General Motors. That's his largest long position, which was down 18% in the first quarter. And then he has what he calls a bubble basket that he's been shorting for the last two years almost. And there is Amazon and Tesla and Netflix. And boy, that's, that's, that is tough. Yeah, he's been talking about it for a while. The funny thing to me is that this reminded me of the fact that you probably a year ago wrote a post and you tried to show some of the most successful hedge fund managers in history and match up their birth date with, with their performance, subsequent performance. And I think the last two on your chart were Ackman and Einhorn, correct? Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of crazy to me that these two, these are pretty much two of the last star managers that aren't in their, I don't know, 60s probably. And they both run into hard times. Like there really aren't that many star hedge fund managers anymore. It's all robots. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's it's the quant quants, I guess. I think the best the best hedge fund manager out there today is Ram Capital. <laughs> yeah, for a half hour every day. So so kind of shifting away from some of these masters of the universe who may have gotten themselves into some trouble from being overconfident to the opposite side of things where people are. Oh uh, maybe... wait, I'm going to stop you. Oh, that's right. You had some more to go on here. Let's stay with this for just another second. Okay. So there was a really good article in The New Yorker about Michael Novogratz and what he's doing with the crypto fund. And Gary Steingart, I think that's his name, the person, that the author of the article wrote, it may help to think of hedge fund managers as an army of men, and they are mostly men, walking down the street with dustbusters, trying to suck up cash and assets from every nook and cranny in the universe. And that is like the typical thing that people think of when they think of hedge fund managers. And it and it's not, it's not fair to paint with such a broad brush, but there are certainly people in the hedge fund industry that fit that bill. And there was an, an art, another article in the New York Times this weekend about a story about a newspaper that was purchased out of bankruptcy by a hedge fund in 2010. And now the newspaper is revolting openly against the company because they're downsizing, they're cutting staff, they're trying to be profitable. And they wrote a piece, and in it, they called the owners of the newspaper vulture capitalists. Uh, so I just thought that was like an interesting thing that's going on. And I guess maybe it's it's sort of unfair to blame this entirely on the hedge fund that bought them, because after all, 
newspapers are having a really, 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 really difficult time these days. Uh, but I just thought that was an interesting article, nevertheless. That must have been a fun editorial meeting to decide we're going to write an article against our bosses. Yeah, well, they, I guess they had the mentality, listen, we're, we're getting fired. So why not try and do something to, to salvage this? And I think they plead for, for the current ownership group to, to sell it to somebody else. All right, now, Ben, you were saying. Well, you sent me this one, and it's, it, it's a story from the Harvard Business Review. And it talks about how a little bit of knowledge can lead to huge overconfidence. And this is kind of the opposite side of the coin of the hedge fund managers who uh, I think can become overconfident because they are so smart and brilliant and, and they, they can probably get caught up in their own, their own skills and their own ideas. And the other side of the equation is, you know, when someone just gets a little bit of learning, then they take that overconfidence and assume that they know, the, they know everything. And so th- this was called research. Um, learning a little bit about something makes us overconfident. And I thought this was kind of interesting. So it says small bits of data, however are often filled with noise and misleading signs. It usually takes a large amount of data to strip away the chaos of the world to finally see the worthwhile signal. But the classic research has shown that people do not have a feel for this fact. They assume that every small sequence of data represents the world just as long as long sequences do. So people get a little bit of data and a little bit of knowledge and assume that they know everything that's going on. And I think that this is probably true. A lot of people in the investment world too is when they first start learning, they think they know everything and just kind of go with it. I certainly experienced this when I first got into uh, into finance. But it is interesting that they said that true beginners will be the first to admit, I don't know anything, right? But it's like when after you learn a little bit, you think that you have mastered the world. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, and I think that this is true in, in a lot of fields, I'm sure. And so the, the behavioral explanation of this is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Which, what? <laughs> I'm laughing because I was actually just reminded, I don't think I ever told you this, but I was shorting Green Mountain Coffee okay. in 2011. And I was looking at their multiples, maybe of cash flow or sales or whatever it was. And I was like, look how expensive this is compared to their peers. And I was using like just like the Yahoo Finance peer comparisons. And this was, I guess, maybe like, I don't know, a year or two into like even figuring out what, what the stock market was. And I was so confident, and I eventually covered. It. I, don't, I didn't. I didn't take a big loss, but Green Mountain never went down. Got bought by Cook was one of like the best stocks ever. So I can certainly relate to this. How many stocks do you think you shorted throughout your trading career? Um, I don't know. The, uh, Amazon and Green Mountain stick out, and maybe I probably shorted Netflix. I can't okay. remember what else. Of course, <laughs> I was more. I was more of an agricultural guy. I was shorting like uh, soybeans and stuff like that. Okay. Okay. So. And now you're thinking about putting that back on with the trade war talks. Okay, so the, the back to this article. So this is the, the behavioral explanation behind this is called the Dunning Kruger effect, which is where a lot of people just don't ask for help and they don't they don't admit to their mistakes and they they sort of go through their decisions with complete certainty instead of you know saying I don't know. And so I I wrote, I wrote a post about this a, a few years ago called the value of I don't know. And David Dunning, the one of the guys, the researchers who this Dunning Kruger is named after, says uh, stumbling through all of our cognitive clutter just to recognize a true I don't know may not constitute failure as much as it does an enviable success, a crucial signpost that shows we're traveling in the right direction towards truth. So it's hard for, for people who are just learning or people who know a lot of stuff to say they don't know, but I think that's kind of, that should be the default for, for most people in a lot of situations. Yeah, there's a lot of really great cartoons that that uh, exhibit the Dunning-Kruger effect. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll follow it. I'll post it in the show notes. All right, good stuff. And, and so the other, the other I don't know thing, which is a good one, which... For a transition here, so Morningstar's Ben Johnson. <laughs> that was a good transition. Yeah, thank you very much. I <laughs> and now we are going to talk about the next topic. Yeah, yeah, I can't put that on the spot. 
so Morningstar's Ben Johnson, who is a good follow on Twitter and, and has a good uh, column with Morningstar, he posted the sector composition of the S&P 500 in 1989 versus the end of, through the end of February to show how much it's changed. The big, the big changes here were technology was only 10% of the S&P 500 in 1989, and now it's over 25%. Consumer staples actually were almost 16%, and now they're under 8%. And I, I think the big takeaway here, financials were also another huge growth component. They went from like 7% to 15%. Huh, what, do you make of, what do you make of the staples declining? getting cut in half, their representation of the index. It's hard to say. I mean, part of it could just be the fact that they changed the way that they define these things over time. And some of the company, I mean, what is Amazon? A consumer discretionary or consumer staples yeah. or a tech company? So just, yeah. it, it could be harder to, to define these things. But I, I think the big takeaway for me is just the fact that the world is never static. So anytime you take these these things, you know, take them a little bit of a grain of salt and comparing them historically is, is kind of difficult because you just never know how things are going to change. And assuming even that today things are going to stay the way they are is, is probably a misnomer. So I, I give a talk to some local CFA groups every once in a while. And one of the slides I use, I talk about how every time is different. So some of the stats I found that in 1957, the S&P 500 consisted of 425 industrial stocks, 60 utilities, and 15 railroad stocks. And so it wasn't even until like the late 80s that they added financials to, to the mix. So it's really hard to compare these things across eras you know, let alone across different markets. So I just think that it's just constantly evolving and changing. Yeah, this is definitely one of the difficulties with historical comparisons. Elroy Dimson was on a podcast last week with Meb for his 100th podcast, which was really terrific. And he told Meb that 80% of industries that existed in the beginning of the 20th century no longer exist, to your point. So that's wild. Yeah, and he goes and he takes all his data back to 1900 and it's got some, and we've referenced that before. So there's another one. Brian Hinman wrote this on, on Twitter. He found from a story that says that fewer than one in five of the Fortune 500 largest firms in 1970 are still there. And the other wow. one was more than 6 million firms in the US were studied, and they found that basically a fraction of 1% survive over 40 years. So there's just constantly churning and changing in these businesses. So any of the businesses that stay there for a long time are actually the outliers. And it's, it's more that change and failure are actually... Uh, the norm. Well, so maybe that's why investing over like longevity is so hard in this business because there is so much change. And what worked after the dot com bubble burst was value, and the opposite is working today. Correct. Yes, I, and I think that those people who don't take it, you know, approach the markets with a little bit of humility and understand that these things do change, and what worked in the past won't always work going forward. I think that's kind of that's that's a necessary state of mind to actually make it in the markets. So I guess you would say like these these value investors like uh, I know in particular really should stick to his knitting, but man, is it is it painful uh, living through periods where growth is in vogue and value just isn't. It's really, really hard. Especially when trying to figure out money managers, I always say that the hardest thing to figure out is, are we being disciplined and sticking with this strategy in a down period or is it just not going to work anymore? Yeah, and that's that. Yeah, we, we talk about it all the time. You, you literally cannot know the answer to that question. Yeah, and that's what you get paid the, the big bucks for is making those decisions, but it, there's never, you, you never know. So, speaking of the, the Dunning Cougar thing, there's a story going around this week that, that Drew Brees, the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, and his wife have filed suit against one of their financial advisors because over a period of 10 year, or a period of seven years, they paid $9 million. They overpaid by $9 million for diamonds as a sort of diversifying strategy in their investments. So they bought an $8 million diamond ring, and then I think a few other million dollars, and the, the value of them is down 
50 or 60 percent or something so he's suing for the difference i would love to know the origin of this like how did he was did he try and resell the diamonds how did he even know that there was a loss i don't know it's yeah that's a good question because i don't know how the diamond industry works but supposedly there really isn't much of a secondary market for them and this is this is not a diamond pickers market you got to index those (laughs) yes uh, that's pretty good I don't know. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, this is just something happens when you're wealthy. Like you don't want boring investments in your portfolio. You want to own, you know, commercial real estate and you want to own a restaurant. This is especially true for professional sports athletes. I think they they don't want to just invest in simple, boring things that are going to make them money over time. Wasn't there an wasn't there an article this week about Joe Smith, the former number one pick? Yeah, he who, uh, did. He made what happened over a hundred million dollars, and now he's more or less broke and. He, he kind of said it was more his spending and, and lifestyle that, that did it to him. But I think it is interesting how many... I mean, it's like the lottery winner that stuff that we talked about last week. The majority of them end up broke. And uh, But I think with the... He was, in the league for, he was in the league for 15 years. Like, yeah. He made a lot of money. Yeah. It would have been nice if he would have put some of that in his 401k. So I saw a really good quote from an old article. Lazo Barini said... My issue with diversification beyond that, and he was referencing stocks and bonds, is that an incremental or arithmetic increase in the number of decisions you make leads to a geometric increase in the degree of difficulty. I thought that was really, really well said. And this is something we've talked about in the past before. I think it, it definitely makes sense if you're that wealthy. If you want to like take 5 or 10% of your capital and you have that much money, you can still make a dent and do something. But just write that off as saying, this is going to go to zero potentially. And if it doesn't, then that's great on the upside. But if you're going to go into these type of ventures and, and really go beyond the plain vanilla stuff, you, you know, make it something that you can afford to lose and not put in such a huge amount. There, someone on Twitter was saying that this would have been like Drew Brees putting like 15% of his total earnings, not just like his total portfolio, his total earnings in the NFL into diamonds, which is just mad. I, I can't imagine. And especially since millennials are killing the diamond anyway, but because they're not giving them out anymore as engagement rings. I mean, what is he thinking? <laughs> Yeah, that was the, that was not a great decision. Speaking of Dimson, they shared a study in their world book. I forget what it's called exactly, but we'll share this in the show notes. They went back to 1900 to show how collectibles performed over time. And jewelry is just not that great of an investment. You know what the best performers were, actually? The top two collectibles, and they compared these two. They had wine, stamps, violins, art books, jewelry, and cars. And the best two performers were actually wine and collectible cars. So Breeze should have probably put a wine cellar in his basement instead of buying diamonds. And the worst is books. Yes. Yes. But they pay the best compound interest in knowledge over time. That's true. Ben Franklin did say that. The more you know. So there was a really good post this weekend by Oswath Damodaran talking about valuations and specifically in reference to the FANG stocks. And I think he's going to have a follow-up post this week. And he said something that was really interesting. He said that stories hold together valuations. And I think we are seeing some of that right now with Facebook in particular, really uh, seeing multiple compression. I don't know what to even think about these. So Swag had a piece in the Wall Street Journal about the tech stocks too. And, and someone asked Munger, I guess at a recent meeting a couple months ago, what do you think about the valuation of Amazon and Apple? And he just said, I don't know, next question, which is kind of how I would you know proceed with this. I honestly... It's hard to tell. I, I looked today because I made a comment on the tech stocks on Twitter and Amazon trades at 231 times earnings for the trailing 12 months. So how do you even begin to value something like that? 
I, I um, honestly don't know. You're asking the wrong person. I, I shorted Amazon in 2011. Okay, but if it hits 250 PE, then you can short it. Yeah. And there and there are some some legitimate causes for concern with how big these have become, I suppose. The, the growth can't continue forever. But I just don't know how you get to the point where you say, are these things going to come crashing down? And is it a Cisco case in the 90s where Cisco got so huge and then proceeded for the next 10 years to completely go down and lose money? Or is it Microsoft where they get so big and then they go nowhere for 10 years? Yeah, so I know I know that technical analysis is anathema to value investing. But why wouldn't you just use some sort of simple trend following rule to short these so-called bubble basket stocks? Like, I would much rather short them when they're going down than when they're going up. I mean, obviously. Yeah, or have some sort of rules in place for when you want to get out of them if they do get absolutely crushed. So anyway, uh, he said that Facebook, Apple, Netflix, and Google added almost $1.7 trillion in market capitalization over the last five years, which was one-sixth the increase of the S&P 500. Put simply, if you were a large-cap U.S. portfolio manager and you held none of these stocks between 2013 and 2017, it would have been very, very difficult, if not impossible, to beat the S&P 500, let alone if you were shorting these stocks like Einhorn has been doing. It has just been a brutal, brutal period for stock pickers that were not picking these these four or five stocks. And the, the relative way of thinking about it is kind of interesting because that's almost another way of thinking about shorting. So if one of these stocks makes up 3% of the index and you don't own it at all, you're effectively short 3% of that that holding in a lot of ways on a relative basis if you're judging yourself against an index. And I think that's probably where a lot of value managers have had a hard time over the last 10 years is that not that they've been shorting these, and some people have obviously, but it's the fact that they've been just not owning them at all on a relative basis. And in Zweig's article, the, the other crazy part to me about Amazon, and speaking of, I mean, people talk a lot about valuations in the investment world, but he, he said... Over the three years ending December 31st, Amazon's revenue has more than doubled to $48 billion. Over the next three years, the sales nearly doubled again to $89 billion. Then over the three years ending in December 2017, the revenues doubled again to $178 billion. So I guess that's the other side of the equation in terms of valuations and fundamentals. It's just, it's been so crazy. And how many times when people saw those doublings, do they think, all right, it's over. That's it. Now is the time to short it like you did. Yeah, well, now that the Fed is pulling away the punch bowl, uh, you know, wait for the signal. Wait for the signal. So we got a bunch of emails after I spoke about Instagram potentially listening to me in a bar, and some people said that they had a similar crazy experience that they were even like, you know, saying items uh, on purpose to see if they would show up in their stream. And then we had another person say that that's impossible, it's ridiculous, but. You came across an interesting story in a book. One of my favorite books from the past few years is called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And it's kind of interesting how smart companies are really at getting to know and understand you. And so they, one of the things he found was that people at the tech researchers at Target figure out a way to understand the buying habits of their patrons. And then they would send them coupons and discounts based on their buying habits. And one of the things they figured out was they came up with a scoring system to figure out if a woman is pregnant based on her shopping habits. And a guy walks into Target to complain and he says, what are you doing sending my daughter these coupons for baby clothes and diapers? Uh, my daughter's in high school. She's not pregnant. This is ridiculous. Stop sending her these. Are you trying to get her pregnant? And a week later, the manager called the guy back to say, hey, I just wanted to call and apologize again. I don't know what happened. This will never happen again. The guy said, well, a little sheepishly, you know, 
actually, I didn't really know what my daughter was getting into. She actually did tell us this week that she's pregnant, and uh, sorry for coming down there to complain. So <laughs> this guy found out his daughter was pregnant because of her shopping patterns and target sender these these targeted coupons and stuff. So it's amazing how well these places can get to know you based on your your habits and your actions. Yeah. So wild. so maybe maybe it's story. the fact that maybe you do you get like the same IPA beer once a week and that's how Facebook figured out your your Goose Island story. No, I'm not a beer drinker. Okay. That's true. So I wrote this a piece this week talking about the cost of college and whether it's worth it. And this is something we're going to visit uh revisit in the future in terms of 529 saving and how much it's going to cost for our kids, but we'll save that for another date. But one of the co-founders of Reddit, uh, Alexis Ohanian, said, you know, and this is something that a lot of people in Silicon Valley are starting to say now, like, do kids really need to go to school? Is it really worth it? Shouldn't they just save that money and start a business and try to go out on their own right away? And, and I, my stance is sure that I guess that kind of makes sense from the perspective of a rich entrepreneur, but how many 18-year-old kids can really start a business for themselves and and make that happen if they're not in Silicon Valley or something like that. So I think it's I think it's a little disingenuous to say that to young people that they should just skip college altogether. Yeah, I thought your your post was really really good. Um, there was some good data in there that I that I was not aware of. The average student loan debt per college graduate is just seventeen thousand dollars. Obviously, coming out of school with six figure debt isn't a great idea, but those are the extreme cases that we hear about. That's certainly not the norm. And furthermore, just 7% of current borrowers have debt in excess of $100,000, which is obviously a ridiculous amount of money. But the people that are taking on that debt ostensibly are going to be in higher paying jobs, right? True. And a lot of them are graduate degree seekers too. It's not just people coming out of... Obviously, there are cases where people borrow way too much in undergrad, but a lot of times it's people that go to grad school. So obviously, anytime you see a chart about student loan debt, it's it's going up and to the right like the stock market. But... Part of the reason is because more people are going to school. And obviously, student loan per person is higher than before. But when you look at the averages, it's not nearly as bad as people make it out to be. Right. So so, so that's the quantitative side. On the qualitative side, you said that meeting new people, living on your own, and becoming more responsible for your own actions are still, are all underrated aspects of the college experience. I cannot agree with you more. Like, you know, there's a lot of nuance here. Um, it's not black and white, obviously, but the idea that you should not go to college and you know, whatever, start a startup or disrupt whatever is it just, you know, for an 18 year old, that's just, that's, that's tough. That's tall order. And I heard from a few people saying, Hey, I didn't go to school and I made it on my own and I'm happy that I did, which, which is great. It's not, it's not certainly not for everyone. And I think it's probably never been easier to do your own thing and start your own business. But if you can start your own business on the side as an 18 year old, go have fun for four years and do it in school where you can be, you know, build up a network and build some relationships and, and I, I probably should have mentioned this, but you know, obviously, you make a lot of friends in school too. I met my wife in college, so there's just a lot of of ancillary benefits beyond the ROI of is it worth it for the amount of tuition dollars I'm paying. So I spent uh, I spent Friday at the University of Pennsylvania. My brother goes there, and I haven't been to Philly in a long, long time. But I had a great time walking around the city. That campus is absolutely beautiful, and I was lucky enough to sit down with Jeremy Schwartz and Wes Gray. And I learned that I am not a good interview subject. <laughs> I, I did not particularly... I mean, it was, it was fun, but I was a little bit uncomfortable talking about myself for an hour. It was sort of weird. Yeah, I, I'm, kind of, I'm similar to that. It's, it's, it's hard to do. And it's, yeah, that, which shows for someone on the other side of the seat, it's kind of tough if you have that person who's not opening up or answering the questions. Or 
yeah. you said you had 90 seconds of awkward silence at the end. <laughs> at the end, Jeremy was like, what parting wisdom do you have for people? And I was like, I don't know, work hard. Uh, <laughs> and then like, it was just Jeremy staring at me, smiling. I was like, I don't get me out of here. <laughs> but it was fun. Yeah, it's, it's not easy, but that, that's good. Okay, any good recommendations for the week? So I found a new person on Twitter this week. Their name, their handle is Sports Talk Joe, and he's definitely a troll, but he's hilarious. He had this really long string of gifs about why LeBron is better than Jordan, and that Jordan was playing a bunch against a bunch of like engineers and librarians, and how all the talk we hear about uh, LeBron couldn't play in the '90s is sort of bunk. And one of my favorite gifs was him driving against the baseline on DFAC, and he goes. Like something like look at Borat trying to guard him. <laughs> Ouch, that's pretty harsh. I would go against take the other side of this one. Obviously, the, there's better athletes these days, but things are more spaced out. And back in the days, you could just get hammered on defense by those guys, like the Knicks teams that you probably followed in the '90s and the Pistons. So I'm. But sure his th- point was his point was these guys couldn't hammer LeBron. Like Bill oh, Lambeer was like was like six ten two fifteen, and I'm making that up. But he was like a rail. Like LeBron would dunk on his head. Yeah, that's probably fair, but... Like, Greg Ostertag was, like, the enforcer on the Jazz, and that guy was such a bum. By the way, I was a, I'm was i a Pistons fan, so I take heart. I take exception to the Bill Embiid thing. He was pretty tough. I will say that. Although... Look little... at the picture Look at a picture of him. Yes. Oh, I agree. But... He was definitely scum, but I don't know how tough he was. But anyway, I, I, uh, I, I do believe that Jordan was the GOAT, but I actually went to... When I was with my brother, I took him to the Sixers-Cavs game the other night, and I've probably been to 100 Nick games in my life, and the best basketball game I've ever seen was in Philadelphia. Wow, wow. That game was incredible. That's also because you're a Knicks fan. What does that mean? When's the last time they were relevant? Oh, uh, got it. Yeah, true. It's been a while. Sorry. Um, no, that's okay. But Ben Simmons blew me away. Uh, he's he's gonna be, he's the he, real deal, huh? He is so dominant. He's like Jason Kidd, but like 6'10". And... I don't even think I think that if like him developing a shot could actually be a distraction. He's so good without it. Like John Wall now is like trying to shoot a little bit, and it's, I think it sort of hurt his game. He doesn't even need a shot. That's a good. I guess like obviously if he could you know get a sixteen foot jump shot, but I don't think he needs to stretch court anyway. He was just he blew me away. All right, so there's a relatively new book out called Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. And Bill Gates had recommended his earlier book. What is it? Angels or Devils of Our Past or something like that? The Best Nature of... I can't remember either. Something with Angels, but I read it. Anyway, I never, I didn't read that one. But this one is pretty good. I'm very much enjoying it. You, you finished and, the whole thing? Uh, no. No, I'm not even halfway done. But I uh, I said I wasn't going to. I watched The Jersey Shore. How was it? I didn't Did, did you watch it? it? No, I, I, I figured... It, <laughs> eh. No yeah, it's it's exact it's exactly the same thing. And I was thinking about how we were talking about like um, the portrayal of of hedge fund alpha guys earlier in the show. How it's like certainly a small slice of the industry. Maybe not fair to paint with such a wide brush. I feel like that's like Italian people are so pissed like when they see Jersey Shore as a representation of that culture because I can see that you know it, it does exist, but like it's really certainly doesn't give them a good look and it's not fair to paint with such a broad brush by the way the pinker book was better angels of our nature and that was a good one too about right. how things aren't as bad as they seem to some people oh in the in this one enlightenment now he quotes morgan which was pretty, pretty yeah, cool to that's see that's cool so i got a couple podcast recommendations i listened to the mark zuckerberg interview with ezra klein at vox which i thought was pretty good and part of me thinks zuckerberg has it kind of figured out because he he pretty much said it's going to take years for facebook to fix this stuff 
And the, the other interesting point he had was, how do you police stuff that people have opinions on that they're just wrong? So it's not like they're trying to spread fake news. They just have factually incorrect opinions and they don't realize it. So how do you police that stuff, which is pretty much impossible? On the other hand, I feel like he's one of these techno-optimists who thinks that, or he thought at least that technology can only do good. And I think he's finally coming around to realize that's not the case. And so I think in some ways he's probably screwed because he has no idea what he's up against in terms of human nature. The other one, good one, was uh, Bill Bernstein sat down with Steve Chen at New Retirement, uh, which is always worth a listen to talk about the markets and retirement and and sort of put some common sense thoughts into the market. A couple book recommendations for this week. I read Famous Financial Fiascos by John Train, and this is a book from like the 1980s. It was from like the mid 80s. Oh, he wrote he yeah he wrote like the Money Masters. Um, which was sort of like a precursor to uh, Market Wizards. Oh, okay. I was trying to figure out where he came from. That was really good. And each each chapter is only like five or six pages, and it goes through some really interesting ones. It starts off with like uh, Charles Ponzi and the Ponzi scheme, and it goes through some of history's great bubbles. And one of the one of the ones I'd never heard of was the Kuwait Stock Exchange in the 19, 1980s. Just went bonkers and then came back down to earth because people thought you mean it was avocados. Go yeah, it went totally avocados. And so that was a good one. I actually had to find it used on Amazon because it's—I don't think it's printed anymore. The other one I, I saw a post on this this week on the investor blog, uh, novel investor, and he wrote a piece on why we don't learn from history, which is which is something I've written before. It's a book. It's just a self-published book, I believe, by a guy named B. H. Littleheart. And is that a stage name? I think it's little, like L. I. D. D. E. L. Not little. Not it's not like a an Indian chief name. And so it's called Why We Don't Learn From History. And he uses war and war tactics as a reason for why we, we never seem to learn from history and how kind of it's, it's, it's a really a lot of good investing parallels here based on basically why human nature never changes. Very good. Yeah, I think that's all I got for the week. Send us an email, animalspiritspod at gmail.com. Feel free to leave us a review on iTunes and we'll see you next week. Yeah.